0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at the Washington Post. Russia's war on Ukraine has taken a stunning turn. Ukraine is pushing back the Russians and regaining territory. Washington Post national security writer, Dan Lamoth is here to bring us up to speed on Russia's changing fortunes. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with Russia's war in Ukraine. With Ukraine um, is rapidly becoming, I'm sorry, let me start again. Russia's war with Ukraine is rapidly becoming a nightmare for Vladimir Putin. What did uh, Vladimir Putin miscalculate? I think there are several things here. The most significant
0: is likely the own, the, the organizational structure uh, and ability of his own Russian military, uh, its ability to Uh, Have soldiers make decisions on the battlefield on the fly, its ability to uh, hold territory, its ability to uh, push logistics forward so that uh, people can eat and have fuel and all the things you need in combat.
1: So the headline on your story this week sums up the situation perfectly. The headline was, Rapid Loss of Territory in Ukraine Reveals Spent Russian Military. Is Ukraine's reversal of fortune a true turning point?
0: That that's a yet to be seen. Uh, it's a turning point. Whether it is the turning point, I think we're you know th- this is this is still expected to play out over a span of of months, if not years. Um, and, and that is something that the Biden administration is is aware of and and to a degree cautioning people about. There is still the expectation uh, that much more hardware is needed, uh, many more weapons are needed, uh, and that this could still continue to be a slog, and that uh, Russia likely is going to look to. Uh, Sort of you know, reboot its military as best it can, uh, and then we could see additional offensives in in the spring, uh, particularly once the weather warms up again.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about um, Ukraine's uh, military needs. since january twenty twenty one, the United States has committed more than billion in security assistance. Uh, President Biden has asked for another $11.7 billion in emergency aid. So talk about Ukraine's most pressing military needs at the moment and how significant that aid has been in aiding Ukraine's um, pushback against Russia.
0: I think the military aid uh, aid is best probably put in two buckets at this point. It's what the United States and its allies are already providing. Uh, and then what Ukraine is asking for, that that has been sort of beyond the line of what the administration and others are comfortable with. Uh, so on, on the front of what's already being provided, Ukraine is still uh, burning through uh, artillery shells and other things at a, at a pretty significant rate. Uh, and the administration is continuing to send those. Uh, as recently as last night, we saw another package. Uh, we're up to 15 billion plus uh, since the invasion itself and even more prior. Uh, you know, the most recent round had uh, additional HIMARS rounds, the rocket artillery that has been very successful, uh, other types of artillery. And we're now even starting to see um, other things that I think have a, a bit more of a forward look to them, including uh, winter uh, equipment, winter, winter clothing, things of that sort. Uh, the second piece of this conversation that has been significant in recent days uh, is uh, Ukraine's request for tanks. Uh, its a request for infantry fighting vehicles and other heavily armored um, vehicles that would be helpful in future offensives.
1: You know, Dan, I'm looking off to the side because I'm reading uh, in our paper in our paper today. Um, in the story, um, the story notes U.S. officials providing a quiet check to Ukrainian exuberance said that while Ukraine troops Ukraine troops have performed better in offensive operations than than their American backers had anticipated. Those forces will encounter a period of intense fighting in the lead up to winter, as part of what they expect to be a quote non-linear trajectory for the war. So, while um, Ukrainian President Volody- Volodymyr Zelensky and a lot of folks in the West are cheering the cheering the Ukrainians taking back uh, territory in in the eastern part of the country, there are folks within within the American government who are like, that's good, but let's keep our feet on the ground.
0: Uh, right, uh, and, and I think the idea is that, you know, each unit is a bit different. Uh, you know, the terrain is different. Some of it favors people that are already dug in. Uh, some of it's more easy to, uh, more, more easy to take back, uh, and that this is not gonna be sort of a, a straight Ukrainian route by any means. Uh, and while there's a lot of the conversation this week, and there's a lot of optimism, that there, there also needs to be a reality check on that front.
1: So, in the end, what is the end game for, for Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin? Because at, at this point, and I ask that because I'm wondering at this point, which scenario seems, seems more likely? Um, Putin taking control of all of Ukraine, Ukraine completely driving out uh, Russian forces, or Russia ending the war but keeping the territory it seized? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're all waiting to see that because uh, Putin's stated objectives
0: um, you know appear to be more and more difficult. Uh, with that said, taking back all of Ukraine uh, to include uh, Crimea, the peninsula on the southern end that uh, Russia took in 2014, also would be extremely difficult. So we're in this middle ground where it's hard to say what comes next and how long it takes. Uh, what would drive uh, parties to the negotiating table? At this point, neither party seems all that willing to negotiate. The Ukrainians are on the move. They have no reason uh, to you know, sort of settle for what they have at the moment when they can continue to take back pieces of their own country.
1: You know, I sort of got ahead of myself. I should have asked you the question I'm asking now before the one I just asked you, and that is, did Western analysts and um, U.S. government officials overestimate the strength of the Russian military, yes, by most accounts they did, and we've seen that
0: both with uh, outside analysts uh, and also with the, with the Pentagon and the U.S. intelligence assessments. Most uh, assessments that we've read, both within the government and outside, predicted this would not last as long as it has. That Russia would have significant gains that they held on to. Really from the very beginning. And really, if you take this back to the battle of Kiev and sort of the outset of this, you know, I think that was a real reality check when they were not able to move that very long column of vehicles farther toward uh, the capital city. Uh, and they sort of got stuck and then had to pull back. And there was all those vehicles that got blown up. That was a real reality check. And really things have kind of proceeded down that path for the most part ever since Russia's made some gains. They often can't hold on to what they take.
1: Uh, Dan, uh, apparently uh, Russian President Putin had a meeting with um, the, the Chinese President Xi where, if I'm understanding the reporting right, what seemed like a solid a solid alliance between the Russians and the Chinese isn't as solid as, as we thought it was. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think China's... Uh you know, that they're not really looking to be a part of either uh, party here in this conflict, Uh, that they're an opportunistic government. They look for opportunities to help their own people and and their own economy. Uh, But, but, you know, providing Russia with significant arms would be a problem for China with numerous other countries. Uh, You know, they don't want to be sanctioned. They don't want to have uh, consequences of their own. Uh, so they're they're willing to talk to Putin, but they're not willing to sign up for his war.
1: Dan Lamoth, Washington Post national security writer, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we'll find Washington Post columnist Hugh Hewitt and Ruth Marcus who was just named an associate editor at the Washington Post. Congratulations, Ruth.
2: Um, Thanks, Jonathan. I'm just trying to keep up with you.
1: (laughs) Congratulations and welcome to you both. Uh, Welcome back to First Look. I wanna keep the conversation about Russia going, Hugh. Is this shaping up to be a victory for Ukraine and Western resolve or a statement about the ineptitude of Russian leadership in the Russian military?
3: I think we can have both, Jonathan. I uh, had a long conversation with General Keith Kellogg last night in the green room over at Fox. And General Kellogg pointed out to me that the Russian infantrymen has lost confidence that they will be taken care of if wounded on the battlefield. The general estimates they're killed in action and wounded at between 75 and 80,000 people in the six months of the war. And soldiers are fleeing because they don't expect to be taken care of if they're injured. The Russian morale, he said, is in the toilet. And as a result, the Ukrainian advance is just so unprecedented. So I think it is a a victory for Ukraine's ability to deter and stand through six long months of war and the terrible deprivation it's inflicted on people. But it's also the Russian military is pretty hollow.
1: You know, Ruth, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, especially since on the front page of The Washington Post today, there's a story smack in the middle of the front page, letters of despair by Russians, demoralized soldiers in Izium leave behind their pleas to superiors as they flee.
2: Um, An amazing glimpse inside the heart and soul of Russian soldiers. And I think this is one um, sort of intangible that we always have to pay attention to when we're thinking about who can prevail on the battlefield. We've seen this um, every place from Vietnam um, onwards. If you have one force that is being kind of dragooned and drafted into um, prosecuting a war that they don't really care about or believe in very much, and another that's defending their territory, defending a homeland, repelling invaders, uh, even if those forces seem Mismatched at the outset, uh, you just you you can't create will, and this has been the amazing story. Dan touched on this of the Ukrainian surprise surprise to everyone, including U.S. intelligence, uh, success in uh, defending itself against the Russian onslaught.
1: You know, Ruth, I'm going to stick with, stick with you on this. I mean, President Biden has asked Congress for even more aid for for Ukraine. And he's made it clear that the United States and the West must support Ukraine because of the larger battle here of democracy versus autocracy. But I'm wondering if there are any signs yet of fatigue from the American people about continuing to help to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars.
2: I I don't think I see in, in the polls or anything else Uh, Ukraine fatigue from the American people that, and there shouldn't be it, That seems like money that's been quite well spent. I think the hesitation that I'm perceiving is actually on the part of U.S. military and U.S. policy planners who want to make sure that the Ukrainians have enough but seem reluctant to uh, accede to some Ukrainian requests to give them what the U.S. may see as too much, and that is Specifically, um, while these HIMARS rockets have been very, very effective, they're reluctant to provide longer range missiles that might really escalate the war. The, the US has been trying to walk a very, very delicate line here in not provoking Russia too much and escalating this conflict, and for good reason. Um, we may all recall that Vladimir Putin has nuclear weapons and um, may not be as afraid as he should be to use them.
1: Hugh, what do you think? Do you see any signs of American fatigue um with US assistance to Ukraine?
3: There are some outliers, you know, on Twitter that say, "Oh, why can't we spend this on the poor and the lost in America?" And uh, they have a point that every dollar that goes abroad is not a dollar spent at home. But I believe it's a marginal outlier on both the left and the right. I think the support is 100% strong. I think the question that is raised, had it arrived earlier, would Putin have been deterred? I don't raise that to criticize Biden. I just raise it to say, should we be doing something with Taiwan right now to get uh, whatever is the equivalent of HIMARS for an island state threatened by a despotic regime uh, 30 miles away, should we be supplying them right now with the means to deter Chinese aggression in the way that Ukraine did not deter Putin?
1: So, Hugh? I'm going to stick with you because you had an interview that everybody, and I mean, everybody's talking about, and that is with uh, former President Donald Trump. Um, he was on your radio show yesterday. Uh, he told you that everything he took to Mar-a-Lago was declassified, and he has done nothing wrong regarding, the, uh, regarding alternate slates of electors, and therefore won't be indicted. Do you believe him?
3: Uh, Let me let me begin by saying I wrote our note to our colleague Mike Duffy this morning saying, Mike, what do I do with this transcript? What do I do with it? I set out to talk to him about seven things. Republicans want to talk about inflation and education and the border and crime in China. Democrats want to talk about abortion and Trump. And uh, the president gave me many newsworthy nuggets. I don't know whether to believe him because he spoke to his intention as Ruth will tell you, is a great graduate, associate editor of Ruth Marcus at Harvard Law School. Proving up intention is a very difficult thing. Men's Rea is an element of crime. So I you need hours to get to intention. I kind of blown away by the amount of news that generated from this. I would encourage everyone to read. I asked him, are you saying violence? The left is gonna say you're saying violence. And he said, no, I'm not inciting anything. I'm just giving you my opinion. Well, you know, I knew what would happen, it did happen, and now I gotta think through why everybody everywhere is so triggered by Donald Trump immediately. Okay, Ruth.
2: Uh, that's I a, have the that, Hugh.
3: Okay, wait, wait, one second, because
1: um, there's a wonderful segue to the question I was gonna ask you, Ruth, because it is the one comment that Trump made that's gotten the most attention from Hugh's interview is when the former president said, and I quote, because Hugh, Hugh asked him, You know, I mean, what happens if you get invited? And he said, Trump said, quote, you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I just don't think they'd stand for it. They will not. They will not sit still and stand for this ultimate of hoaxes. And so, Ruth, many viewed that as a veiled threat akin to what Senator Lindsey Graham issued a few weeks ago on one of the Sunday shows. How do you view it?
2: Um, not so veiled. That's how I view it. Thanks for reading the whole quote. And I have to say Hugh, to his credit, said people, I think he was referring to people like me, uh, said people are gonna read that as some kind of veiled thread. Are you saying there's gonna be, are you inciting violence? He said, oh no, I'm not inciting anything. Come on, we have been here before. We have been here on January 6th. When he says uh, people aren't gonna stand for it, he doesn't say, I don't, I didn't hear him say, and Hugh, you didn't hear him say either, I don't want to see any protest. If there's protest, it needs to be according to the rule of law in a courtroom. People are free to express their disagreement, but they must do it in a peaceful way. That is not at all what he said. And so I'm really interested in how Hugh interpreted his non-answer to Hugh, but I interpreted as a um, be very careful inciting my people because we know what they're capable of doing. And I
3: think it's um, frankly despicable. Hugh? A year ago, I asked him, did you intend the January 6th rally people to invade the right? He said, no, I didn't intend that. I think the former president has a movie in his mind that runs about Americans marching in the street like uh, many rallies have been held in his defense, but not crossing that line. I think he underestimates how the problematic part of the far right will take any opportunity to incite violence. It's the Charlottesville problem. It's a problem in America on the left and the right. How can you march in support of George Floyd's family and, and his victimhood and not have it descend into violence? Uh, the former president is indifferent to that line. Uh, but as a journalist, I had 18 things to ask him. I don't think I would have advanced the question very much if I pressed him. A lot of people wanted me to go longer than four minutes on that. But I had to cover China and abortion and all the rest of the stuff. I hope he keeps coming back because now I've got about two dozen long interviews with the former president. He never doesn't make news. He's the best interview in America because he always makes news, but he does dance on that line. And there will be tens of thousands of people in Youngstown, Ohio tomorrow night to see the former president when Ohio State is on TV. So there's a divide in the country. People hear him differently. I'm fascinated by that. I don't think it's despicable. I think it is deeply, deeply divisive.
1: Ruth, is Donald so, uh, Trump, quote, dancing on the line, or is he pole vaulting over the uh, line?
2: Um, he, he is um, trying to dance, but the thing that's really unconvincing about Hugh's argument that Donald Trump has a movie that he's played in his head is that we've seen this movie before. Um, we know what his words spark. Um, we know what his followers are capable of. We know how it ends that is not a good thing. And you know, it's not a good thing to be telling prosecutors that you should be very careful of indicting me because my supporters won't stand for it. That is not the rule of law. Hugh made the point that prosecutors can get an indictment of a ham sandwich. That is true. Um, But Merrick Garland is not an attorney general who goes after ham sandwiches. He's an attorney general who goes after serious, prosecutable crimes under the Justice Department guidelines he has to be confident that a jury will find beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime a person is charged of uh, can be proven um, and that the person will be um, held responsible and guilty and so th- that I find Donald Trump's uh, threats to be um, contrary to everything that the rule of law stands for.
1: so since I've got I have two attorneys, uh, here before me. Uh, I, this question is for both of you with Hugh going first. Uh, do you think the former president is in is in, in any legal, legal jeopardy, Hugh?
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, I, the hard news in the interview yesterday was he has not received a target letter. So uh, Ruth can expand on that. She covered justice longer than I covered justice. I worked there, but I didn't I didn't cover it and i think he would have received the target letter by now if one was coming if he's in legal jeopardy it's from the january sixth investigation about the uh, electors he told me another hard news i had nothing to do with that uh third bit of hard news he confirmed the cash patel account that he had issued a verbal order to declassify, which makes problematic any indictment and prosecution of him and i just want people to think about what would that look like i, I covered oj i was in la during oj uh, trial of Donald Trump would make O.J. in this age of Twitter and social media. You tell me, Ruth and Jonathan, what would that be in terms of a polarizing event for the country? I think an indictment would be profound mistake. Well, Ruth,
2: unlike O.J., it wouldn't be televised. Um, uh, alas, on that. However, I mean, I don't think it would be televised. That wouldn't be the norm. However, um, a couple quick points. One is that I think that Donald Trump is in potential serious legal jeopardy, not just for the uh, conduct on and surrounding January 6th. And we've seen evidence of expansion of the justice probe on that front um, recently, but also in terms of his handling of the classified documents. And I thought that. The big news in Hughes' story was actually Trump's assertion that he somehow waved this magic declassification wand that he has in the in the face of Kash Patel and declared these materials um, declassified. Uh, Even if that is true, um, and even if that had the impact that Trump claims it has, you have to actually go through a process of declassification. That would not end the um, Mar-a-Lago piece of the Justice Department investigation. The statutes that the Justice Department cites in its search warrant affidavit do not require that the documents uh, have been classified. Uh, The Espionage Act, the obstruction statute can apply to documents that aren't classified. So if I were Donald Trump and Donald Trump's lawyers, I would be very, very worried about my legal jeopardy.
1: I want to switch gears in the time and uh, the little bit of time that we have left, and talk about immigration. And just to get the, each of you to talk about um, to get your perspective on what's been happening, especially this week, with Republican governors in Florida and Texas taking migrants from uh, from their states, and then sending them to New York, Washington D.C., Chicago, and now with Governor DeSantis sending a plane load of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Hugh, you go first.
3: Well, I I, I discussed this yesterday and at length today. As a Christian, I'm very, very troubled by the exploitation of human beings for any purpose other than their care. The 150 people involved at both Vice President Martha Vineyard might be better off today than they were three months ago. The governor's basically flipped the script and set up a cry for help from those states most impacted. I lived in Southern California for 30 years. 50 migrants is a daily occurrence. 150 migrants is a weekly occurrence. Migrants all over the southern border are flooding into towns that have no infrastructure. What the governors did, stunts though they might be, I, the reporting thus far is that the migrants agreed and wanted to go. They're probably the best off 150 people to have escaped the grips of the cartel. In The last, the cartels now make about 15 grand per migrant that they bring to the border. So I, I think it worked and I wouldn't do it again. How's that? Because I'm very troubled by exploiting human misery for even effective messaging.
1: Ruth?
2: says stunt though it may be, I think we ought to be able to all stipulate that this was a stunt. I am particularly moved, uh, angered in fact, by Governor DeSantis, who as I understand it, didn't take migrants from his own state, but used his own state's money to take migrants from Texas and ship them to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian um, to find this a a, a really, um, uh, I'm going to just use the word, my word of the day seems to be despicable, just um, despicable use of uh, human beings for political games and um, political advantage. I really hope it blows up in Governor DeSantis's face, but I suppose it probably won't
1: and you you know uh, uh, at first blush sending migrants to Martha's vineyard uh, looks like an own uh, of the libs by sending them to this tony island off the coast of massachusetts but if there's if there's one place where you could send migrants where the reaction would be welcome let us let how can how can we help you it's Mar- it's martha's vineyard um the community there is very very welcoming, and the and the reaction to folks there has it's not uncharacteristic of the people who who go there and the people who live there year round. Real fast, um, we have the 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 Queen's funeral coming up on on Monday in in London. Uh, Hugh, you tweeted when she died, no one equal no one equal in her service to the United Kingdom. Real quickly, explain.
3: Well, for 70 years, she did her duty in wartime and in peacetime through uh, personal travail and through public need. She just did her duty. So as a, an emblem of service for 70 years, not just to the United Kingdom, but to the Commonwealth and the world, she stood for stability. And my favorite line attributed to her, the essence of good taste is never to be offended by bad taste. I wish we could all have that tattooed somewhere in, uh, nearby.
1: I don't do tattoos. Ruth, what do you believe?
3: <laughs> what do you believe the Queen's legacy will I my bad be?
1: taste
2: all the time, but I try to be civil about it. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, the Queen served her country well and kept her British stiff upper lip. I'm still um, adjusting myself to the phrasing of King Charles, uh, after all these years. And uh, I hope her example and her death um, creates a little bit more civility in all of us and actually um, brings the royal family back together a little bit, because they've certainly had their own travails, as you said.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and that is King Charles the Third, just to be, you know, specific. <laughs> Hugh Hewitt, And brand new associate editor at the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus. Thank you both again for coming to First Look. We got to go. Have a good weekend. Thank you, John. Thank you. you, Thanks for listening. To
0: always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.